The OX Podcast is funded by me, James, and Per, together with contributions and help we get from you, our listeners. You can contribute to any amount you'd like, however often you'd like, or by donating your time, just go to uxpodcast.com slash support. UX Podcast Episode 260. Hello, everybody. Welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Roy Lawson. And Per Axbom. And we're balancing business, technology, people, and society with listeners in 199 countries and territories in the world, from Martinique to St. Martin, which actually isn't that far, because they're both in the Caribbean. But how far is it? Just under 500 kilometers. Oh, you knew you I was going to ask. <laughs> yep. If you took a helicopter, okay, which I cool. suspect you'd have to because it's two islands. One of them's Dutch, but Dutch territory. One of them's a French territory. Huh. The UX Podcast Geography Show. <laughs> <laughs> and today we have a link show. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to this uh, because it's kind of unpredictable. Uh, we do, do it all in one take. We have uh, two articles lined up for you. We've chosen one each, and we will be delving into those about uh, a quarter of an hour each, and uh, we don't know what will happen. So first one out is uh, Websites are not living rooms and other lessons for information architecture uh, by Sarah Barrett. Uh, She's a principal research and IA manager at Microsoft in Seattle, Washington, and a really smart person I had a pleasure of meeting at World IA Day in Switzerland uh, a couple of years ago. She's Documentalope on Twitter. Oh, I didn't know you'd actually met her. Um, The second article is Things I Wish UX Candidates Would Ask Me During Interviews by um, Natty Asher. Um, She's the product design lead at BuildDots in Tel Aviv, Israel. Um, She's Asher Natali on Twitter, but it doesn't look like she's active there anymore. Right. Uh, Websites are not living rooms and other lessons for information architecture. So this article by Sarah, I I loved the intro because it made me think so much just by that opening. So I'm actually going to read it out. Uh, So wherever you are, please take a moment and think if you can remember where your grandparents kept their telephone. Uh, Close your eyes if you need to. Where was your high school locker? Where is your can opener in your house right now? And now ask yourself, where is your most recent copy of your resume on your laptop? And I think that's such a good example. And instantly it made me think of all the times people call me up and they have a computer problem. And they ask me to help them, of course. Uh, And usually I can, but I can't without seeing the interface in front of me. It's so hard for me to guide someone on a computer without actually seeing it. Uh, So this is the general point that Sarah is making, that uh, we think in this spatial way as human beings. And the way most interfaces are are built up, we're actually not helped as much uh, 
the way so we're not helped in the way that would help us the most as human beings in thinking about the spatial issues that would help us remember uh, how to navigate and how to find things and, and how to remember where things are. Yeah, that, that, I love the intro parrot as well. The, the um, you know straight away you've gone. I've gone wandering off thinking back to my grandparents' house back in the probably the seventies yeah. where that phone was. I know exactly <laughs> where that phone was and what, what probably even what color it was and where it was placed. And so that, that the, the way we have physical objects and a spatial memory of them, um, or or in the case of the the locker, um, I I actually can't tell you exactly which one was my locker. Um, you know, the end of my school years. Um, but I know the route to it. Mm. So, so because it was a very regular route, it was something I did several times a day. So I could, I can see myself walking to that spot. Right, so, exactly. You know, it's a regular route. And then, or maybe in the case of the can opener, there's, um, I, I mean, I, I don't use a can opener very often anymore, but I know where it is exactly, probably because I have a regular awareness of its presence. In the drawer where it is, I use other things in that drawer. So oh, even though yes, I don't exactly. use the canopy mm. itself, mm. I'm constantly reminded of its presence. Mm. It's got a fixed home. It, it's, it's visible to me. Um, so so these, these are all interesting aspects. And you compare that then to the CV side of things, that file on, in my case, Dropbox or whatever, that, um, <laughs> on the laptop itself. Mm. It, it, you, don't, you don't have that same you know, way of visiting it or, or or being reminded about it or it reminding you of its presence. Exactly. And the only way I've, I've learned to deal with it as I've gained more experience and grown older is that I have a naming convention mm. which allows me to find it by a search. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Sarah goes on to, to explain there's a, there's a regular fallacy here because we know that we can easily navigate physical spaces uh, then it's so appealing and, and enticing to actually use something that looks like a physical physical space as the user interface, uh, which uh, many of us will know as skeuomorphism, uh, where we actually mimic what something looks like in real life to, and use it in the digital space. Uh, and this goes back and forth in, in a fashion, she mentions. And, uh, someone declared it as dead, I think, five years ago, and then you see it creep back. Uh, and she has the example of uh, of Microsoft Bob, and I wasn't familiar with Microsoft oh, Bob at all, actually. Me neither, actually. Uh, and I re- when I read on, on Wikipedia, it, it actually they only had it for one year. Microsoft oh. had that for one year. It was a way of of using of <laughs> really re- replacing the desktop interface with something looking like a room. Uh, so when was it from? Was it from the nineties or yeah, ninety four to ninety five is when they had it. I see. I didn't have Windows back then. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I probably didn't either. I, I maybe still had my Atari. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was still on Riscos. <laughs> uh, so, so they thought that that would make sense to people, uh, and I realized when I saw that that I actually I think I tried even mimicking something like that myself. And there was a trend at some point where you actually changed the wallpaper of your desktop. And you could place out the icons on different places on that picture, of course. So whatever you chose, like a bookcase, you could put the the desktop icons in a bookcase, which made it look pretty cool. It looked cool, but it really didn't make sense. Yeah, and she mentions about um, kind of uh, did, you know, a radio app. If you made it look like a radio, everyone would be kind of lost. Mm-hmm. But when she wrote that, I went, ooh. I got really a little bit nostalgic and excited because it made me think of um, back in the days when you, everyone had Winamp 
at least mm. Windows people, you, you had Winamp and you could set skins for Winamp mm. and, you know, you could have like a radio looking skin mm. for your Winamp. Winamp was an MP3 mu- uh, music player on the um, on, on Windows. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, well, the thing is, with, with these stuff, I mean, it's, it's not immersive enough, so you have to make shortcuts. And she has the example, well, there's two doors in that space that don't make sense at all. And just me looking at that picture, so... The letter writer, I guess that's sort of the, the word processor, is on the coffee table by the sofa, and that's probably not where I would sit writing a letter. So you have to make all these uh, connections that probably aren't true to you, perhaps. Uh, anyway, it didn't work. Uh, mm. It obviously didn't work. They killed it after a year. Uh, and she calls it laughable. <laughs> it's kind of cute, and I can, see, I can see where these things, they pop up again and again because people think of gamification. They want it to be fun. But in the end, fun probably isn't what we're after. We're after actually finding our files. <laughs> that is probably at the core of it. <laughs> uh, I'm actually thinking now of when we're thinking of spaces, how sometimes when we're having dinner, my wife will look up <laughs> from her plate and look at me and ask, well, do you notice anything different in this room? <laughs> <gasps> And I have to look around and see, well, are the curtains changed? Is there a new plant in the window? It's like... It's <laughs> She's had a haircut. It's, it's like it could, that. could be something like that as well. <laughs> but then I think in the physical spaces, that usually is quite difficult, actually, to keep track of. But when you move in the space, that's that's what makes it makes it different. Because uh, you, if you knock into something, <laughs> because you usually move in that space, of course you're going to notice something. Yeah, well, she gives the example of um, Google Docs mm. in the article. Um, um, this is where the well, interacting with a, a Google document um, offers, it's, they surface different options, whether you're viewing it from um, on the desktop or on mobile. Right, um, yes. And that's that's really interesting. Mm. Um, it ties in with what we talked about over the years with how you shouldn't hide stuff on mobile. You know, when you do the when responsive, we started to kind of like narrow viewports, and then mm. we just bunged everything in hamburger menus, and you know, didn't suddenly worry about what actually was useful and required to to complete certain tasks. Um, and that seems to be this, a bit of that kind of classic mistake that they've done there. But for me, it made me think about how uh, we've forgotten the fact that. The, we have an object. The, the document is a, a, an object in our head. Mm. And that object then is something we interact with and we have the expectations about our interactions with that object. Mm. So whether you're doing that through a mobile interface or a desktop interface, it's the same object. Exactly. And and that that to me is the key mm. point here, that we forget, you know, it, it's not mm. just an interface to work with documents. Mm. The the thing that you're presenting is that CV, and that CV is an object, mm. and we have expectations with what we do with that object. I need to be able to manipulate it in the same ways wherever I am. Yeah. Mm. Expectations of manipulating mm. it, or or its uh, or its presence, how it is, where it is. I mean that that is all connected to that object. Yeah, exactly. And she ends the article with with some some tips on how to make our digital experience experiences more mappable according to our existing skills. Uh, Four things. Uh, And she's actually going to be adding uh, this to a series of articles. So each of these will become its own article. That's so interesting that you... I didn't actually notice that when I was reading it. And I actually wrote in my notes that uh, the list is really interesting, but feels like it could go a bit deeper and expand on it. Mm. It'd be good to have a series of posts about it. So (laughs) she actually is. Oh, that's really good. I'm pleased now. (laughs) 
So what is the list? So the first one out, uh, number one, is understand your scale. And this is about the difference between, and she gives the example of a tabletop experience where you do something perhaps on your desk, on your physical desk. And that's different from a landscape scale experience where you're perhaps playing an outdoor game, soccer or something. And so... And digital experiences also come in both scales. So this is like zooming and zooming out. Are you are you kind of like exactly on a, a, a small space, mm. or are you kind of looking at something huge? Mm. Right. That's a really good point. Because I mean, when I started out describing how people call me and and uh, they need help with some computer problem and I need need to help them, I'm actually that actually made me think when you said zoom in and zoom out. That made me think I need a way to describe. The bird's eye view of where they want, they need to enter, and then I need a way to describe the stairs to go where they want to go, and then I need a way of describing the details of the button they need to click. Mm. Yeah, you have to navigate mm. both those landscapes. Yes, exactly. Mm. And number two, leverage the principles of naive geography. A person doesn't have to have, <laughs> have to have it taken a physics class to instantly calculate where a thrown ball will go based on force and angle. And similarly, people don't have to be geographers to make complex and accurate assumptions about space. So if, if the experience then is a landscape, uh, this wide bird's eye view, uh, you can assume that your users will make sense of space using a few principles. So you always need to be thinking about where you are, where, where their head is at, and what their how they're thinking about space, how so, they're moving. So, so this is geography at your scale. Mm. So this connects to the first point. Exactly. You want to go with number three? Not really. Wayfinding. <laughs> I'd say what it is. Wayfinding. <laughs> uh, so not all <laughs> real-world experience can be mapped. It's, it sounds so simple. So all we have to do now is make the interface into a map and everything will be solved. Uh, that's, of course, not something uh, that's easily done. Uh, but I'm thinking of, so you're moving around in a, in a building uh, and you get lost, but you need to have the same types of signposts to find your way out. They can't be of different types. So it's that's actually, it's closing in on what the fourth point about standardizing the way uh, things look uh, so that people can easily find it. So, yeah, she has the example so, so of supermarkets. The, yeah. All right. No, but I was thinking about three with the wayfinding. Yeah. Um, that's that's then that kind of mapping thing, isn't it, where you you uh, explore, maybe even superficially explore a space mm. to get your bearings, to get kind of like a feel of what's what's there and what's where, where things are and available and so on. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember early on Jared Spool talking about, so if people wake up, <laughs> uh, wake up in your website. How do they know where they are? <laughs> I was going to say after a drunken night, but I don't know if that was a good example. But no, other pubs are shut in so many countries, so maybe that doesn't work anyway. Yeah. Oh. Yes, that's true. But but we'll, we'll find out more when she writes more about each of these. Now we're actually yeah. making some assumptions about what she, what she means. But the f the fourth one is actually my, uh, the one I take the most from. Use standard elements intentionally. So it's it's so important to be standardized in the way that you move, that you place things so that it's the same across. That's the, I mean, that is the Google Doc example. Mm -hmm. uh, that also made me think of the real world example when, when you travel a lot and you go to different countries. Because in Sweden, if you go to another person's house, you will almost certainly know where the cutlery is, <laughs> the top drawer. And you always, always know where the bin is. <laughs> and you know there's no washing machine in the kitchen. But in other countries... <laughs> that's not true. Uh, and so 
you, you notice that things are standardized differently based on perhaps even regions in countries, but in Sweden, it, it's really clear how, how standardized things yeah. are. Yeah. And it makes it so much easier, of course, to move around and feel comfortable and safe in a new space. And, uh, yeah, and this makes me think again of Jared Spool. Guys, oh, really? mentioned him now. He's going to love us. <laughs> the, well, and, and what he's talked about with um, current knowledge. So we, we've discussed before about um, consistency. Yeah. Um, and this comes into consistency. And his argument there is, well, isn't not consistency itself that's the thing. Mm-hmm. It's appreciating current knowledge. Um, and what you're talking about there with the top top drawer being cutlery or, or mm-hmm. the bin being under the sink in Sweden, mm-hmm. that being consistent is only one aspect of it. It's it's useful when the current knowledge of the people that are going to use it is that bins are underneath sinks. Yes, exactly, right. There's nothing in... Ch- I mean, mm. if if you need to teach people bins are under sinks, then, mm. then that's not a current knowledge, a different thing. Mm. Here it's kind of appreciating what they know and what they expect, mm. understanding their their mental model or even their expectations of an object um, as part of it. And, and we could probably talk for hours about uh, going to a hotel and understanding the shower because you see people post on Twitter about that all the time. How do I even navigate the hot water and turning on the faucet and stuff like that? Yeah. So, hotels and pubs for making all the things that are <laughs> top of people's minds. Oh, exactly. <laughs> so excellent stuff. Uh, and I, I, I'm really looking forward to, to her future articles where she goes deeper into those things. Uh, because, I mean, it, it opens so much inside me. And it really made me think about how can I design an interface that I can talk about well, more easily even on a podcast, describe to people so that they understand how to go somewhere and I don't have to see it in front of me to be able to describe it to someone. Ooh, challenge. Mm. I did I, I did actually have a note here about because a large point of this is that people can close their eyes and imagine things and imagine space. Uh, there are people because I, I mean both you and I we talk a lot about accessibility. There are people who actually can't see stuff when they close their eyes. They can't imagine in the same way. So there is a scale to that. It's called aphantasia if someone wants to look that up. Uh, where you actually so you tell tell a person to to imagine a red apple when they close their eyes and they literally can't. Uh, so that's actually something that people suffer from, or something that is different for, for a lot of people. Hmm. Add a link to that. Hmm. Article number two. Let's move on. Um, yeah, the second article now is things I wish UX candidates would ask me during interviews. Now, one interesting aspect here, Bo, is, of course, neither me or you have had a job interview for a long time. That's when was the your first thing one? I wrote. <laughs> when was your last job interview? Uh, I think 15 or 16, 16 years ago, yeah. 16 years ago. Yeah. God, I, think, I think mine was actually nine years ago. Okay. Um, job interview, that is. Yeah. Um, you know, with a little star next to that and like mm-hmm. consultant interviews are a different thing. Um, to a degree, they, they overlap a lot. Um, but um, uh, Natty, she wrote this article on the back of um, what recent recruitment efforts um, she was carrying out at um, uh, Build Dot, where she's working. Um, and at the very at the beginning, she briefly lays out her process of of selecting candidates and and you know, how she goes about the the interviewing and a bit of structure of the the interview. Mm. Um, but then comes the question. Do you have any questions for me? So she poses this question to the interviewee. 
Yeah. Now, the interviewee, which is, you know, it's our protagonist in this story, they're suddenly <laughs> facing the, the real big challenge of their story arc. I mean, so, what, what does our hero, the interviewee, do? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really tough question, that one. Do you have any questions for me? I mean, mm. I think, even though it's been a long time since me and you pair have, have, have had job interviews, it is one of those questions um, you get. And I mean, it's it's not it's not one of those. Sometimes you can accidentally take it as a rounding up thing. So well, right, you know, exactly. Um, yes. Is there anything else you want to ask mm. me? Yeah, you know, mm. and it's it's not. It's so much more than that. And I think what she says. She, well, she's got some advice, but um, um, she points out that it's it's not just a closing of the interview. It's an important part of the interview. Mm. And she says that she learns um, a lot more about a candidate from the answers she um, she gets to that. Yep. Um, I'll quote here. I usually learn uh, more about a candidate, their maturity and expectations uh, from their questions to me uh, more than anything else. A candidate does, that doesn't ask me anything or asks shallow, expected questions is usually a turn-off. Please, please, please challenge me. Yeah. And it's such a good point, especially, I, I'm thinking now, when... And designers are being interviewed because a good designer asks questions. <laughs> it's part of the skill set. It's part of uh, trying to gauge the situation you're in and understanding what's going to happen. And exactly. So, so showing that you can ask those questions is actually sort of a test. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I mean, you know, working with user experience or design, then you've got to understand your problem space and understand mm. the person at the other side. And you know, understanding the needs of the in, mm. you know, person doing the interview um, Oh, it's, it's an important part of it and lifting the right questions. But I totally get that people are nervous and they want the job. And the, yeah. I'm so, I mean, and it, I, I mean, I haven't asked the types of questions that are in this article. I wish I'd read this article uh, before I went to an interview. So I think that's, that's an excellent reason why we're featuring yeah. it. It's, I mean, it's, it's really, really good. It is, and it makes, it's mm. <laughs> connecting back to the first article when mm. it opened up with uh, making you think back mm. you know, to grandma's, uh, grandparents' telephones and so on and school lockers. This was a similar kind of thing for me. It made me think back to interviews and say, oh, yeah, you know, what did I, what did I prepare as that kind of like, special question to add at the end? Because, I mean, that's the kind of thing you did. You tried to think yeah. up of something. But it's, it's difficult um, to, to, to come up with, with good questions in advance because, you know, an interview is a fluid situation. And, you know, just like when we're interviewing people, you may have loads of things that you thought about asking, but you can't just kind of like throw them in depending on what's been said already. It, it, it sometimes could come across really weird, right. like asking almost the same thing again as you had already talked about. So, you know, then you have to pull another question out of your bag. So suddenly you have to prepare several questions to be able to kind of maintain the interview or to, to be able to deal with that at the end of it. Hmm. But um, Natty G, G helps us by splitting things up into boring questions and smarter questions. <laughs> yes, right. So she she first lists um, um, a lot of questions where she's like, "These are standard stuff. This is not going to get you anywhere." And all these questions um, are basically a, a, they relate to the practical side of things. It's it's like you know, organizational structure. It's about the leadership. It's maybe even contract stuff. You know, how many days off do you get? What's the kind of salary? All that kind of thing. And working environment. Um, and she says, usually these questions are answered. Um, at any of the earlier or later stages. And if not, you'll probably have the opportunity to ask them at the proposal stage. So she's saying, basically, don't waste this one-on-one -on -one interview or this kind of like specific interview with the boring questions. Mm. They're not going to, as she says, 
turn her on. Uh, she wants to be challenged, and they're not yeah. going to challenge her. So, so what are takes, the smarter questions? Exactly. This takes us into the smarter questions. So um, what she points out here, before I go on some of the questions, she points out that um, you should be interviewing me at least as much as I'm interviewing you. Mm. And I, that, that made me note down, because I think that's a, that's, a, that's a good point to think about. That it's, it has to be a balance. Yeah. Because you don't want the interview to be 100% um, oh, them interviewing you. And the same thing the other way around. You don't want it just to be a presentation of your company. Because then you're learning nothing about the candidate. So, the, so the, the perfect interview is a, is a good balance between you know, both intervie- interviewing each other effectively, the, the representation from the organization and the individual who wants the, the job. That needs to be uh, oh, evenly spread out. I'm thinking you could even take it one step further. I saw a post on LinkedIn uh, last week, I think, where an, a manager was actually asking candidates to check references on them. So they weren't just checking them on the candidate, but it, mm. it was in both ways. So That's nice. I, li- I really like that approach. And, I'm, and I have to mention, though, that, I mean, not all managers, not all hiring managers will be this open. No. I think this will be different. So, again, with the UX, it's, this is a, one situation where we're, just, we're describing where this is a fantastic hiring manager. Uh, and I think and she, that wants you uh, to make them think and sweat, but that won't always be the case. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You probably do have to be careful maybe with... Again, the the understanding and the feel for the type of question or the way you can phrase a question to the person interviewing you, if it's going to work or not. But but to be honest, I mean, I think you you know they they should be challenged. They are interviewing you. They, so, I agree. I, I mean, totally I, agree. if it you're not you're not meant to, you're trying to get a job, pal. So I mean, protecting their feelings or whatever is only maybe something to consider, not the most significant thing to consider here. But um, anyway, one of the questions. Um, I'll give a couple of examples. Um, one of them was, um, what are the biggest challenges the team faces at the moment? Mm. What are the team's strengths and weaknesses? A second one here, what are the expectations and achievements I should aim for over the first 90 days? Mm. What would make you think, I'm so happy that we hired James? Which I, I love that question, actually, because it kind of it allows... And that to yourself writing the article, it allows you to, to, to put yourself in this frame of mind where you've already employed the person you're talking to. Exactly. <laughs> and you've moved beyond the interview, you move beyond mm. kind of like, okay, um, they've worked 90 days now, this is what I expect them to have done, and this is what would make me happy. Mm. So you've, you've, you've done a wonderful job of, of pivoting this interview to the next stage in the, you know, your, work, your mm. career with this organization. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, I love that. And and this one, actually, I I thought similarly about uh, the question to pose is, uh, what current problems uh, would you solve right away? Because that actually, it opens up opportunities for things to take on if you get the job. So it actually also places you in uh, in a frame set where you are the person solving those problems that they want to solve as soon as possible. Yeah. And um, I I actually have um, my own question as well, that I kind of thought of when I was um, looking through them. I reckon you'll like this one, Pat. Hmm. Have there been any decisions that your team has had to deal with that have raised ethical concerns? And how did you manage them? I have in my notes here ethics questions. I want to add those. That's perfect, James. <laughs> it felt to me like this was a, you know, yeah. especially when we've talked so much about, yeah. um, you know, encouraging people almost to to quit organizations if they they're they're you know they're 
um, their own ethical thoughts and groundings don't match the organization, then here's a point, here's a way that you can open up to see whether an organization matches your values from, from the interview stage. Ask them if they've been you know, in, a, in an awkward situation, an ethical situation that's been challenging for them, and what did they do? You get the chance to hear their process, well, to understand if they allow this kind of openness and, and feel comfortable with discussing certain things and, and whether you're going to be able to be part of that um, mm-hmm. or feel comfortable be part of that. And I think that's, that's I mean, that's wh- why these questions are so important and why this article is so important. It, it forces you to think about where you want to be, what are your visions, what do you want to accomplish, and if that is a good fit. We too seldom think about how the position we're applying for is a good fit for us, not just now, but down the line a few years. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. that comes to, that brings us nicely to the, the killer question, as, mm-hmm. as um, she puts it. Um, do you have any doubts or concerns regarding regarding my fit to this position mm. that I can address before we end? And I love this question. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it opens the door um, to, to instant feedback. Um, and as, as she says in the article, it gives you the chance to respond as well as needed. And so here I'm kind of, towards the end of the interview, I'm saying, look, you know, is, is there anything that makes you doubt whether I'm going to you know, get this job? Mm. Um, and if... If you get a no, there's nothing at all, then you're pretty much going to, okay, maybe I'm going to get this. And then if they bring something up, then you can, you can take it to, you know, you take it a little bit further in the last few minutes of the interview and hopefully address the mm. issue and keep on in there. And exactly, whatever the response is, you, you get the sense of, uh, a sense of the impression you've made in the interview, which is really, really good. And even if you don't get the job, you've now gathered feedback so you've used the end of the interview yes. to to mm. uh, to assess to re- to do some research to gather feedback for yourself mm. so you can iterate and do better the next time. So w- one thing I love about this mm. is that it actually makes me want to have an interview, <laughs> not necessarily because I want a job, but <laughs> it wants me to have an interview so I can test these things and yeah. test this stuff and get some feedback. It's um, it's it's quite inspiring in that sense. That's a really good point. Awesome stuff. So we have some some recommended listening for you, as always, uh, based on these articles. And uh, the first one we have recommended is uh, episode 254, Sorting Out This Mess with Abby Covert and Andrew Hinton. And and Andrew Hinton is actually mentioned in, in Sarah's article. Yeah, he's uh, an innovation architect as well and, and um, yeah. has written um, well, a very useful book, which he mentions in the article. And that's a, from a converse, conversation we had with them in 2015. Mm. And, and the second, yeah, the second one we're going to recommend, which is also related to information architecture, um, is episode 169, um, Reintroduction to Information Architecture with Donna Spencer, mm. um, which was back in 2017, Pat. Two old ones. Um, yes. And... Donna has also written um, a, a good book uh, about information architecture, which currently is available for free because Donna's um, publisher has basically just stopped publishing it. So she hasn't worked out exactly how she's going to make it available and, and, and make it for purchase again. So under, well, at the moment, while she's working it out, you can download her book as a PDF for free. Excellent. And if you can spare a little bit of your time, then join our little community of volunteers. We're always looking for help with transcripts and publishing. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.
So, James, did you know I used to work in a shoe recycling shop? No, I didn't know you used to work in a shoe recycling shop. Yeah, it was uh, soul-destroying. Oh.